Welcome to the show, everybody. It is election day. It is that time. It is going downsies. Cannot wait. Cannot wait. It'll be a really interesting night, no matter what happens, because every single option is on the menu. Everything's on the table. Nobody really knows what the fuck's going to happen. Um, so definitely tune in tonight. We're going to be live streaming on this channel myself. Uh, I'll be with the Breaking Points crew, and um, we're going to break down the election. We'll have uh, some specific numbers for you on the different races. We'll give you the results in real time as they come in. So if you're looking for a place to hang out, watch the election, chill out, um, definitely tune in. Live streaming on the Secular Talk YouTube channel. Um, I I'm really excited for that. I'm really looking forward to it. It should uh, be a fun time. It's not just... It's myself... Uh, Crystal, Sager, Marshall, and then we also have um, Ryan Grimm and Emily Jashinsky. Did I get that right, Emily? She's going to be there as well. That's the Counterpoints crew too. So, anyway, should be a lot of fun. Um, and who knows? Might be some, might be some interesting little debates we get in. Since obviously this is not a crew that is all <laughs> ideologically aligned. Uh, always makes for uh, fun time, fun conversations. Anyway, so uh, we got that going on tonight. Uh, of course, everybody, if you're watching this, do me a favor, like, subscribe, trying to get to a million subs, Mission Impossible, trying to subvert the algorithm. Very, very difficult. But if everybody who watched the show actually subscribed, we would already be there. So hook a brother up. I'd really appreciate it. Click that little bell icon, icon too. You get a notification every time a video drops. And if you'd like to watch the show uh, or listen to the show, I should say, on one of the podcasting apps, you can now do that. We do we post the full shows on the various uh, podcasting apps as well. Um, so this is for people who don't want to click video for video on YouTube. You want to hear the whole thing. Go right over to Spotify or whatever, and you'll be able to find it. And that's fun for everybody. And a big shout out to the patrons who keep this show going. Link in the video description box below if you want to help the show. And also to all the people who uh, who support Crystal Kyle and friends over on Substack. We love you guys, too. So anyway, uh, today got an awesome show for you guys. Um... We're going to talk about, does a secret cabal of elites run the United States? Does a secret cabal of elites run the United States? Uh, you will know the answer to that. You will learn the answer to that. We also have um, tensions rising in North Korea and South Korea to the point where kind of on the brink of war. Nobody's really talking about it because there's a lot of stuff going on. But, you know, every time I scroll through Twitter every day, it's like there's a new missile test and there's a new, you know... But one world leader puffing their chest out and saying, bitch, I'll fuck you up. And the other one going, bitch, I'll fuck you up. So got some real, real serious stuff going on. Um, and then Ron DeSantis dips his toe into Christian fundamentalism and runs an ad which basically tries to make an argument that he is God. Or he is chosen by God, I should say. Anyway. All right. So without further ado, let's go ahead and get started here. So, um... I saw this in Axios, and this piqued my interest for a number of reasons. So, they say, stunning poll, 44% of voters see, quote, secret cabal. Um, now, I don't know why this is so stunning to them. This is not stunning at all to me, but I'll, I'll give you my analysis as we go along here. But, um, share of voters who say they think the federal government is controlled by a secret cabal. Total, 44%. Republicans, 53%. Independent, 41%. Democrat, 37%. So, look, what you should take away from this is, I mean, there's a little bit of a partisan split, but not really, right? Like, it's not that big of a partisan difference. You, It would be hard to find another area where there's, like, this little of a partisan split, right? So, and that's the question. Is the government controlled by a secret cabal of elites? You ready for this? I hope you're sitting down. Here's my... uh breathtaking answer to that question. Yeah, <laughs> but here's the thing. There's a there's a difference in how people interpret this and how they answer the question. So if you're asking some far-right Republican, they say, yeah, it's run by a secret cabal of elites. But what they mean is uh, Pizzagate is true and QAnon is accurate and it's an elite cabal of pedophiles and Satan worshipers and Luciferians who drink the blood of children after they rape them. Like, there are some people who genuinely believe that, right? Um, and those people would be wrong. <laughs> they would be incorrect, because they go way too far with it. They go way past any sort of empirical, uh, you know, basis for, for their answer. Um, and, you know, they bring in shit they saw on 4chan or 8chan or some shitty meme that their racist uncle posted, <laughs> posted on Facebook, right? So... It's different depending on who you ask, but yeah, is it worded in a, in a sort of nefarious sounding way? If you say um, a secret cabal of elites controls the government, yeah, but 
again, one of the interpretations of that is corporate donors. So I guess you could say maybe secret isn't really the right word because it's not all that secret. I mean, you could see if you really want to go through the um, the campaign documents and the the financial disclosures, you could see who's funding it. So maybe secret's not the right word, but is it a cabal of elites who runs the government? Yes. Yes. And this is the proper interpretation of this. It's just mainstream political science interpretation of it, which is, remember that Princeton study that we talk about all the time, which found that, um, you know, the the will of your average American very rarely, if ever, gets implemented into policy, whereas the will of wealthy donors almost always gets implemented as policy. That's what I mean when I talk about a cabal of elites runs the government. I mean, the military-industrial complex, for example, Wall Street, for example, big banks, corporations, billionaires, um, well-funded think tanks. Yeah, these are the people who control our politics. And these are the people who are in the ears of the politicians on a day-in and day-out basis. And um, these are the people who effectively give them their marching orders. If the only voices you're hearing in the room is some some voice from Boeing or Halliburton or KBR or... or uh, J.P. Morgan Chase, you're going to listen to them. They fund your campaign, they give you the advice, and so you go in the direction that they want you to go. And it's, it's, the thing is, it's out in the open. Like, the, the conspiracy is in plain sight. It's in plain sight. It's not what, you know, a lot of people on the far right think. It's just, it's a lot less sexy, but it's no less egregious. Than, than how they're interpreting it. I mean, I guess it is a little less egregious because there's no raping babies and <laughs> drinking their blood and all that stuff, right? But um, it is a cabal of elites that runs the entire system. But like, the difference is their answer is like, we need Q to usher in the storm, which is like, kill and imprison all of our political enemies. So they want rank authoritarianism as the solution, when in reality, the solution is stuff like clean elections. So no private financing of elections at all. So no more super PACs, no more regular PACs, no more billionaire donors, just everything's publicly financed elections. That would be one of the solutions. Constitutional amendment to get money out of politics. That would be another one of the solutions. Um, just having a government that actually represents the will of the voters. This is a solution. So it's not... The sad thing is, look, these people who have the more nefarious uh, interpretation of this, they sort of get hoodwinked into in anti-establishment politics that doesn't deliver to improve their lives. You understand what I'm saying? There's no, like, if you end up on a 4chan board or an 8chan board and you're just like a brazen white supremacist and it all started because you got interested in Epstein and then went down the rabbit hole into things that weren't true, it's like you had all these anti-establishment feelings which maybe genuinely stemmed from the system's so fucked up we need to fix it, but then you ended up in a place where, like, you actively want to make our politics worse. Whereas... You know, the left wing interpretation of this, the correct interpretation of this, of like, yeah, these are all, there is a cabal of elites, but it's just corporate donors and billionaires and PACs, Wall Street and Big Pharma. Like, you know, you could actually go down a good path if you start reading those things and learn about, hey, how do we fix the system? What's a better economic model for us to implement moving forward? How do we give workers more power? Things of that nature, right? So, anyway, um, I'm not surprised that it's 44%. In fact, I'm kind of surprised it's not higher. And um, clearly the implication that they're they're putting out there, Mike Allen is in this Axios piece, is, oh, aren't these people crazy? It's like, no, only some people who see a secret cabal of elites are crazy, and it's the ones who buy into Pizzagate and QAnon and an incorrect interpretation of a cabal of elites. But there's certainly a cabal of elites running things, and they ain't eating babies and worshipping Satan, but they certainly are worship, worshipping the profit motive and their bottom line. And... um. It's just, it, it, I actually view, view this as like a clear example of how shitty our media is. That they can't differentiate between the things I just described. That's it's just like, oh, conspiracy, secret cabal of elites, bad. It's like, why don't you give ideas their, their due diligence? But they would never. Anyway, let's see what else they say in here, if there's anything else interesting. Joel Benenson, the renowned pollster for President Obama's 2008-2012 campaigns, gave a first look at the results of a question he'd never asked before. We wanted to test QAnon's language with... QAnon's language that the world is controlled by a secret cabal. Yeah, but see, that's the thing. They're saying, oh, this is QAnon's language. 
to say a secret cabal of elites runs the government, again, there's a more benign interpretation of that, which is true, and they just act like that's not the case. Guys, this is why some conspiracy theories can take off, because you can't engage honestly with the language, right? Like, if you go up to somebody who might be going down a bad rabbit hole and you say, hey, your feeling is actually correct. There is a secret cabal of elites running the government. But now let me explain to you the dynamics of it and how maybe it's not exactly what you think it is. Well, that's you're more likely to deconvert somebody by saying that and by explaining that. But they don't view it like that or they don't care to engage with the nuance of it. And that's fucking infuriating. And that's why corporate media sucks. Um... Given that the U.S. is the world's strongest democracy, we wanted to see how far the appeal of that language, of language like that, might reach. But again, fifty-nine percent of voters agree that the U.S. is a strong democracy. Interesting. So fifty-nine percent agree we're a strong democracy, but forty-four percent say we're run by a secret cabal. Sixty-six percent of Democrats, fifty-five percent of Republicans, fifty-four percent of Independents. Anyway, there you go. Um, it's true, just not in the way that people on the far right think it is. I mean, that's 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 the bottom line. Remember, guys, the other day we covered a story about um, there was a missile attack from North Korea that went over Japanese skies and then landed in the ocean past Japan. But there were uh, missile alarms going off all over Japan because there was an incoming missile, right? They didn't know it was going to fly over until it flew over. And so that was a huge story. There was a minute there where people thought, holy shit, is this World War III? What the fuck's going on here? Well, since then, that's happened a number of times with South Korea as well. Um... And now I guess you're at the point where you read something and you're like, okay, it's probably a false alarm again, so it doesn't land as hard as the first one did. But things are not in good shape over there. So this is in BNO News. They say tensions rise on Korean Peninsula. North Korea fires 18 missiles into the sea. 18 missiles. In response to U.S.-South Korean drills. Biggest volley of missiles since 1953. Triggering air raid sirens in the south. 100 artillery rounds fired into buffer zone. Oh, boy. South fires three missiles in show of force. So things are kind of, you know, spiraling out of control a little bit over there. Um, that's what it looks like to me. So I have this video as well. Um, I don't know. I don't think you speak in English, but we'll, we'll play it. Uh, but this is South Korea's defense minister. Secretary Austin and I affirm that any nuclear attack by the DPRK, including the use of tactical nuclear weapons, is unacceptable and result in the end of Kim Jong-un regime by the overwhelming and decisive response of the alliance. This is a strong warning against the DPRK. So I don't know... If they're saying if they even do a, a nuclear missile test that they're they're going to overthrow them or if they mean, no, it has to be an attack. It's unclear what they mean. But basically what they're saying is, look, if any anything nuclear goes on here, we're going to topple your ass. That's what they're saying. When you're at the point that you have to go out and say this shit in a press conference, dog. Oh, that is not good. That is not good. The world is spiraling out of control, if I don't say so myself. And then we also have this. North Korea warns U.S. and South Korea will find out they made an irrevocable and awful mistake by extending military drills. Um, Pak Jong-chan, secretary of the Central Committee of the Workers' Party of Korea, made public, that's North Korea, the following press statement on Thursday. It was reported that the U.S. and South Korea decided to extend the combined air drill vigilant storm. It is a very dangerous and false choice. The irresponsible decision of the U.S. and South Korea is shoving the present situation caused by provocative military acts of the allied forces to an uncontrollable phase. The U.S. and South Korea will get to know what an irrevocable and awful mistake they made. See, the thing that's so uh, frustrating about all of this is this does genuinely feel like one of those situations where if you just had an open line of communication and you were going back and forth all the time with North Korea, all of this seems like it could have been avoided, right? Like they view these South Korean and U.S. military drills as provocative and as dangerous and as offensive in nature. Like, hey, they're practicing for an offensive invasion against us, an attack against us. And so in response to those drills, they do a lot of missile tests and they shoot the missiles over Japan and they shoot the missiles over South Korea or near South Korea. They fire into the buffer zone. And so this is how things spiral out of control. I don't think people, I think people genuinely think 
there's like a cartoonish version of history where like, you know, everything is very clearly delineated. Like, this is when this thing started. But really, it's only in retrospect you realize like, oh, that actually was the start of the thing. Like, for example, the assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand in World War One. Like at the time, people probably didn't think nearly as much of it as it became uh, known as. It became known as like, this is the very beginning of World War One. Holy fucking shit. But at the time, I don't know if people really saw it in that way. It was just like, damn, this crazy thing happened. That's fucking wild. I wonder what's going to happen now. Like, it wasn't It wasn't like, this is it. We're now in World War One. And I feel like there's a lot of shit going on like that right now as well, with Russia and Ukraine, for example, uh, and U.S. involvement in that and funding the funding the military of Ukraine and uh, giving them certain weapons. And, like, I think people only in retrospect realize, ah, fuck, maybe that one we went too far. And it's like, well, what are the fucking consequences of that? And a little bit of restraint on either side could have avoided a worst-case scenario. And so, look, what's the answer? Well, first and foremost, you pick up the fucking phone. Talk to your counterpart in North Korea if you're a top official in the U.S. Um, figure out exactly what the beef is, what's going on, what's the problem. Because can we really fucking afford this now, too? Can we afford some sort of a war in Korea and, you know, North Korea, I don't know how far along they are with nuclear weapons. Are they far along enough where they actually fucking have them and they're functioning? Because do you want a potential for a nuclear explosion there and hundreds of thousands or millions dead there? I mean, really, what are we talking about here? Everything is so reckless. Uh, shit, man. We gotta, we gotta negotiate down. You gotta put the um, safety and security of everybody involved at the forefront. And it just seems like that's not the case. Because both, both sides think like, well, my only answer here, the only thing I can do is to show our strength. And then they both do that, and then eventually it gets to a place where there's no coming back from. And that's got to be avoided, man. That's got to be avoided. I know I sound like a typical, you know, hippie, like, bro, give peace a chance, bro. I know I sound like a typical hippie douchebag right now, but look, sometimes the hippie douchebag is correct. Listen to fake Slim Shady with his fucking, <laughs> with his hair, all right? For the love of God, let's back away from the brink. We cannot afford any more of this shit going on. So Ron DeSantis, um, one would one could say he's a rising star in the GOP. His, his numbers have only gone up and up and up, and now Donald Trump is even taking notice, and he's threatened by his rise, and he's taking shots at him. Well, anyway, this guy, um, he's the master at riding right-wing culture war outrage. That's what he's good at. Well, he just released this new ad, and my response to it is, what the fuck? Because <laughs> this is goofy as hell, man. So um, this appears to be an ad where Ron DeSantis is arguing that he's, like, chosen by God or some shit. So I'll let you guys decide. We'll take a look, and then we'll react to it. And on the eighth day, God looked down on his planned paradise and said, I need a protector. So God made a fighter. God said, I need somebody willing to get up before dawn, kiss his family goodbye, travel thousands of miles for no other reason than to serve the people, to save their jobs, their livelihoods, their liberty, their happiness. So God made a fighter. God said, I need someone to be strong, advocate truth in the midst of hysteria, someone who challenges conventional wisdom and isn't afraid to defend what he knows to be right and just. So God made a fighter. God said, I need somebody who will take the arrows, stand firm in the wake of unrelenting attacks, look a mother in the eyes and tell her that her child will be in school. She can keep her job, go to church, eat dinner with friends, and hold the hand of an aging parent taking their breath for the last time. So God made a fighter. God said, I need a family man, a man who would laugh and then sigh and then reply with smiling eyes when his daughter says she wants to spend her life doing what dad does. So God made a fighter. Ego check. Can I get an ego check on one Ron DeSantos? Did Ron Dementos? 
Ron DeSantis skis. Can I get an ego check? Goodness gracious, dude, what are you doing? <laughs> what was this? Well, at first I thought when I was here, like, oh, is it like, see, like, is it like quoting a Bible verse or something? But then he starts talking about like, you know, some like anti-school lockdown stuff. Because, you know, school lockdowns are still, you know, a giant issue. There's raging debate all across the country. Half the, half the country sh- shut their schools down right now. No, this, this, this is an issue that's old. Nobody's shutting down schools. Nobody's saying you can't be with your loved one if they're, if they're passing away. He's like, it's a culture war, culture war, culture war. But I thought it was a Bible thing. And then it, obviously it's not. Like, what is this, a fucking poem that somebody wrote to try to say that Ron DeSantis is sent from God? And then, look, the, I love the... At the end, it's like, never stop fighting for freedom. Well, hold on. You can't do the whole, like, God chose me and then do the, but I love freedom thing. Because, no, those things are fundamentally at odds. The people who are, like, Christian nationalists and fundamentalists, they don't want freedom. They want to ban uh, your right to choose. No freedom. They want to um, they want to kill drug dealers so pot wouldn't be legal. No freedom. They want to ban gay marriage. No freedom. They want to ban the right to contraception. No freedom. They're against me. Ron DeSantis is against legalizing weed. Remember? He said, uh, you know, it it smells shitty, so I don't like it. So, you know, it should remain banned. We just never stop fighting for freedom. Freedom, my ass cheeks. What about, by the way, freedom to vote? Because remember his, like, election fraud group went and arrested people uh, for illegally voting? Come to find out, it wasn't illegal at all. They got out of prison, they served their time, they were told by the state government of Florida, yeah, you can vote, just register, you're all set, you're all good, because voters in Florida gave felons their right to vote back. It was a direct vote, and they did. And so they went and voted, and then they get fucking arrested and charged with a felony. Why? Because Ron DeSantis wanted to fucking virtue signal that, like, I'm going to crack down on this uh, rigged election stuff, man, this election fraud stuff. I'm strong, I'm a fighter, I'm going to go after it. I'm gonna, I'll take away people's freedom for, for virtue signaling points. I'll do that. God fucking damn it. What the fuck was this, Ron? What the fuck was this? I Look, I don't... I don't know who told him to do this. I don't know who told him to do this. But this ain't it, dog. This ain't it. Go back to surfing your fucking right-wing culture war outrage machine. Go back to, you know, things that make the Daily Wire go, Ooh, yippee! Go back to that. Go back to that. Because that's how you rose in the polls. It's not like the... Pff, me, bro. No big deal or anything, but God wants me to win, bro. God wants me to win, bro. No big deal, bro. What the fuck? Jesus Christ. <laughs> you know they're so full of shit, too. Ron DeSantis doesn't think God chose him. That fucking, like, pudgy weirdo. He knows God didn't choose him. And by the way, if God did cho- choose you, not the smartest God. Not the best God. That God's got a little off. little offington. You know what I'm saying? So, anyway. All right, Ron DeSantis. Uh, making a fucking fool of himself. Uh, one of the most uh, disgusting self-blowjobs I've ever seen in an ad. So Bill Burr had Bill Maher on his podcast, and um, it, it, it's interesting. It's interesting. There are many, many parts of this that we could talk about, but I want to show the part where they get into kind of a heated political debate. I think it's an interesting back and forth, so let's take a look and I'll break it down. Watch the news. Right. I tried to be the guy that knew stuff. And it, it just fucking, <laughs> didn't work. Well, because there's no solutions. It's well, just they just present one horrible thing after another. That's not true. Either. And then you that's, just watch people there, go after the tail, there are, never the head. That's the head. That's ridiculous. There are many, many people in this world who are better off because boring people locked in rooms, eating cold pizza at two in the morning with stale coffee, worked on yes, pro- drivers, excuse me, worked on problems so that lives could be made better. And they were. That was the, the, one of the most vaguest, longest sentences well, the, I've ever heard in my life. Well, if you wouldn't interrupt me so much, I could finish. <laughs> what are you talking about? I, I listened to the whole I, sentence. Uh, uh, the whole sentence. That's right. Everything is done in one sentence. Okay. Just uh, let me put some uh, specifics there. Okay. Uh, there's guys uh, in uh, rooms uh, with cold pizza working right, long and hard. Exactly. Okay. Uh, for example, uh, senior poverty used to be 27%, and then people worked very hard to pass Social Security, and now it's under 10%. Um, child poverty. We just saw an incredible drop in that. How do That's you know it's be- under 10%? Because they have... Government agencies who work on that, are you suspicious that those stats aren't right? Well, I do remember that once you were unemployed, after a certain amount of time, they just considered you not looking for a job and they took you off of it. Okay, but this is, we're talking about senior citizens. We're talking I about senior citizens. What the bankers did in 2008 ended up with me in 2000, whatever, 12, when my roof collapsed from water. 
I had okay. water I, I can't have a serious political discussion with the guy at the end of the bar who just anecdotally throws something like that out that has nothing now to do with the reality. Finish. What? Now who's not letting somebody finish? Okay, finish. All right. So I have insurance. It's my insurance. I pay for it. All right. So when the check comes out for my water damage on my roof, it's made out to me and my, my mortgage company, and I have to sign it over to them because of what they did in 2008. Because they fucked people so bad in houses, yes. and so many people were so upside down in houses that they were like, what's the point of fixing the roof? I, and then they would keep it, and then they would default on the loan, and then they get the houses back. So they did what they did, and then they made me pay for it. And, they, and I had to do it okay. really slowly, I, and they came over like I was a child, checking out, you know, did you do the work, and blah, blah, now, you're, now we'll release some more money. And I could have paid for the whole fucking thing and just been done with it, and I had to sit there and be treated by a child by a bunch of fucking crooks. Okay, I, I'm not... I, <laughs> I, I, I can't even really engage. First of all, I don't contest any of that. Uh, the 2008 and, the, and the, the meltdown was just horrendous on so many levels. And I'm, sh I'm very sorry about your roof. But I just can't engage on this level of we're talking about your roof. It's so But it's because that's well, anecdotal. It's, it's because because you're trying roof. to extrapolate from your roof to making a statement about America in general and how we solve problems. And of course, your roof is your roof. And that, so that's and that silly matters. to do that. It is silly. Well, it a few is minutes silly. ago, you said I was a lot smarter than I let on. And now you're talking. <laughs> down to me saying, oh, you're fucking roof. And, and I'm but some it, guy at the end of the true. bar. Who am I, Bill? You're <laughs> I am who you need me to be, depending on what your yeah. fucking argument I, is. I would say you have potential. To be, I would still go see Bill Maher at the Hulu Theater <laughs> at Madison Square Garden. Are you throwing me out? Because, I'm not throwing you oh, out. I thought, I thought you were wrapping to, it up. I was because, trying to break the tension. Okay, I thought you, I thought you were like going. I've had enough of this guy. No, so no I think you, I what I'm saying is, is you, you have the potential. The potential. Oh, gee, thanks, Coach. But, try a little but, harder. But, what book but, should I read? I'll become your little I, fucking protege. Uh, start with one and then see if you like it. But he doesn't think I read. I do think you read. That's, what do you think I read? Uh, I think you read uh, <laughs> Ted Williams' biography. Guilty. All right. You get the gist of it. Um, so, look, that was an interesting fight. And the fight was Bill Burr sort of with the nihilistic, defeatist kind of take of, like, we never we never get the solutions. So, like, what's the point? Like, you waste time in politics. And at the end of the day, nothing really improves. So it feels like a fruitless endeavor. That's kind of his point. And Bill Maher's point is, like, actually, no, that's not true at all. Because there's a lot of, like, boring stale bureaucrats who are behind closed doors who are trying to uh, you know solve problems and they were able to do it in a way that has a very real world uh impact and look watching that debate what's my takeaway honestly they're both right so let me explain what i mean by that so mar is right and he brought up a very concrete example to illustrate his point um the senior poverty rate before Social Security was 27%, and then it dropped below 10% after Social Security was implemented. And what that tells you is we had a redistributive program where we gave more money to old people, and it got them out of poverty. So, ow, wow, would you look at that? Turns out people in poverty are lacking money, and if you give them some money, it helps them. Then he also brings up another great example, um, the extension of the child tax credit uh, reduced child poverty in this country 50%. Now... It was only temporary, and they weren't able to re-up it, so now it's gone all the way back up to what it was before, but there was a time period where they reduced it 50%. So, that example actually is the perfect um, reason why they're both right. Mars right in that, yeah, they're, like, there are real-world impacts to policy choices that are very demonstrable, that people truly feel in their own lives. Um, and that can't be discounted. You can't take an anecdote and say like, well, that doesn't count because this thing happened to me. But Bill Burr's right in this sense. Um, we have the potential to like flat out fix so many problems, probably most problems. And all we do are these sort of tweaks around the edges, right? So to the, to the child tax credit example, okay, if you, if you reduce child poverty by 50%, what that proves is the government has the ability, if they so choose, to fully eliminate child poverty, and they didn't do it. So are we really thinking about, like, like that's Bill's point. If you know you have the ability to eliminate it, but you don't eliminate it, then people do sort of feel like this is a little bit of a fruitless endeavor because the answer is right in front of us, plain as day, and you're not going down that path. You understand what I'm saying? So... And, and I think Bill Burr makes a good point about the 2008 subprime mortgage crisis and the Great Recession. He has firsthand experience of how, you know, Wall Street and the bankers fucked everybody over and rigged the rules in their favor. And, of course, they got bailed out by Obama. And then they paid bonuses to the same people who bankrupted their companies as people were being foreclosed on all across the country. 
So look, fact of the matter is, I could give you a million examples on both sides of that equation. I could give you a million examples of, no, this is a real-world program that helped, you know, helped people tremendously. But the rebuttal is always, uh, well, but we could have, like, totally fixed it, and we didn't. They chose not to do it, so really, you know, what's the point? What's it all worth? And ultimately, Bill Burr lands in this nihilistic, defeatist kind of place of, like, fuck. Do I really want to waste my time with politics and reading about it and learning about it? And then when I feel like... um we're sort of beating up on, on straw men all day and not getting to the heart of the issue. And he goes on, by the way, to bring up, like, it feels so stupid when the media, you know, shits on comedians or whatever. It's the lowest hanging fruit in the world. Why are you going to go after a comedian for some edgy joke when you have all these real fucking problems like child poverty, like homelessness, like, you know, uh, 45 million Americans who are uninsured, have no health insurance. Like, and, and I take Bill Burr's point there, but I think he needs to also digest Mars' point because... The fact of the matter is, I don't think you could just sort of hand wave away the real material improvement that has happened in people's lives um, when sane, intelligent policy is implemented. I'll give you another example. Since Bill Burr gave like his own example from his own personal life, I'll give you mine. Uh, There's one time I was in like college, uh, went out, I think it was in New York City, just binge drinking, um, and I left my card in a bar and then try to go back, get it, lost it, something like that. And, um, so I, I had to call to get a new car or whatever. And I called and in my drunken stupor, still with a pounding headache, they asked me like, look, uh, do you want identity theft protection? Because you, you should have it because, you know, if you lose your card, Lord only knows what's going to happen, who's going to take it, what they're going to buy and all that stuff. Why don't you give yourself peace of mind, get identity theft protection, and then you'll be better off, you know, if you lose your card again, you don't have to worry, yada, yada, right? And, uh, you know, again, I'm still drunk, <laughs> hungover, feeling like shit. I'm sure, whatever, fine. And they charge you whatever it was, 10 bucks a month, something like that. Um, well, come to find out, years later, I get a check in the mail for whatever it was, a couple hundred bucks, maybe 400 bucks, something like that. And it was a check from the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. Uh, which, by the way, was brought to you by Democrats. It was actually Elizabeth Warren who was the, the chief architect of that and had to convince Obama to put it into to the bill. And the reason I got the $400 was because there was an investigation into the credit card company I was using, and they found out they were selling completely fraudulent, fake uh, identity theft protection. There wasn't even a program. They would just take your money and do nothing. They were just taking it at, at, for profit. And so that is a concrete example of when you have a government that's looking out for you, I had an extra $400 because the government was the cop on the beat. And so that's real. Now, Bill Burr can say, yeah, but look at the reaction to the subprime mortgage crisis. And it was, you know, largely because of the corruption in our system, it was like a slap on the wrist for the people who did something wrong, if that. And so many people got hosed. And that's absolutely true. But it's also true that there was a real concrete fundamental difference between... Uh, the way even a shitty neoliberal corporate Democrat administration reacted versus how a Republican one reacted. How how does a Republican one react? Donald Trump destroyed the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. He obliterated it. This was an uh, you know an agency that gave back twelve billion dollars to Americans who were defrauded by big banks and the financial industry. Trump destroyed it. Trump destroyed uh, all the regulations on the predatory payday loan industry. There were lawsuits against them. He dropped the lawsuits. Why? Because they gave him a million dollars for his inauguration. So that's, these are real world things. Now, again, that doesn't mean every problem gets fixed 100%. That doesn't mean they even do a good job of fixing the problems we do have. But there certainly are some things being done. And that's why I think Mars' example of the social security thing is spot on. Yeah, senior poverty is 27%. Then it dropped below 10%, all because of social security. Um, massive W. But Bill's right in that, okay, so you got it to 8% or 9% or whatever, senior poverty, you can get it to 0%. Do that. Do that. And that ultimately, what Bill's right about is, Bill Burr, I should say, that needs to be the, the, the guiding light. That's the North Star. The North Star is like, yeah, the goal is to get zero senior poverty, zero poverty, period. Zero poverty. Zero child poverty. That needs to be the goal. That's what you aim towards. That's what, that's what you strive for. But any step we can make in that direction is objectively a good thing, and that needs to be acknowledged. 
And so that's why I say they're kind of both right in their analysis there. But you could see that they were kind of snippy with each other. It was good. It, this was a good podcast for that reason. I like that they were snippy with each other. I like that they're sort of aggressive with each other. Um, frankly, disposition-wise, I'm much more of a fan of Bill Burr than Bill Maher. I think Bill Maher comes across like an arrogant asshole sometimes and sort of like so married to his opinions that like anything that slightly deviates from it, he can like be like, well, I don't like that. You know what I mean? So um, dispositionally, I'm more with Bill Burr. But in this particular debate, like the nihilism and defeatism versus the, you know, the happy, uh, we actually can do this attitude. I'm somewhere in the middle on that front, as you can see. But definitely go check out the full podcast. It was good. So Putin made some comments the other day that uh, raised eyebrows quite a bit. So here's what they say in the Daily Mail. Putin's deranged Hiroshima threat. Russian leader tells Macron the 1945 atom bomb is proof, quote, you don't have to launch a nuclear strike on a major city to win a war. Huh? So, uh, of course, that's a reference to the United States nuking Hiroshima and Nagasaki um, at the end of World War II. And, you know, historically, there's a great video by Sean on YouTube that goes into all the specifics. And the gist of it is the U.S. didn't need to nuke Hiroshima and Nagasaki. It was basically a show of force to send a message to the Soviet Union that, hey, we're the boss now. And um, <clears throat> don't even think about trying to compete with us effectively. And um, they were the Japanese were trying to surrender for a while. Um, and... We ignored it and nuked the shit out of them. So Putin's sort of bringing that up. And But look at the, the phrasing. And this is what people are pointing to as kind of yikesy. You don't have to uh, launch a nuclear strike on a major city to win a war. On a major city. So the implication is like, maybe we do it not on a major city. Maybe we do it over the Black Sea. Maybe we do it over a rural area in, uh, in eastern Ukraine. Um... But you don't have to do it on a major city. Okay, all right. Yikes. Yikes. Um, here's what they say. Russian leader Vladimir Putin has alarmed Western leaders by referencing the nuclear attacks on Hiroshima and Nagasaki in a conversation with French President Emmanuel Macron. Diplomatic sources have said, according to the sources, Putin expressed the view that the bombings, which triggered the Japanese surrender and the end of the Second World War, demonstrated that you don't need to attack the major cities in order to win. The United States detonated two atomic bombs. Uh, killing between 129,000 and 226,000 people, most of whom were civilians. That's crazy. We don't, like, people don't really sit on that fact and digest it, especially if you're American. They certainly don't teach about it in school the way it should be taught about. 129,000 to 226,000, probably over 95% civilians. And we just casually did it. I mean, that's some fucking ISIS, Al-Qaeda-level type shit. Just, like, massacring hundreds of... Uh, Al-Qaeda wishes they could aspire to what the U.S. did. The reported remarks come amid growing concern that the Russian leader could be prepared to use a tactical nuclear weapon in Ukraine, where Russian forces have suffered increasing setbacks in the conflict. A source said Macron was distinctly alarmed. It sounded like a very heavy hint that Putin might detonate a tactical nuclear weapon in the east of Ukraine while leaving Kiev intact. Ugh. That appeared to be the thrust of his remarks. A French government source told uh, this newspaper, the two presidents have undoubtedly discussed the risk of nuclear weapons use. Putin wants to get the message across that all options are on the table in line with the Russian doctrine relating to nuclear weapons. Uh, this newspaper revealed last week that during the final days of her time in Downing Street, Liz Truss became increasingly concerned that Putin might use a battlefield nuclear weapon in Ukraine to the extent that she became fixated with the weather forecast in case the wind blew a radioactive cloud over the UK. Jesus. Ms. Truss had been told by the intelligence agencies that Putin might explode a weapon in the air above the Black Sea, which would show the West what he was capable of without triggering a full-scale nuclear war. Oh, man. Ugh. I don't, I don't like where this is going. So, look, we discussed yesterday that the United States is now prodding Zelensky to negotiate with Putin... But the U.S. also goes on to admit that, look, we're kind of doing this for like PR reasons, because we want the allies to present a united front. We want everybody to to sort of understand that, yeah, there's going to be problems with grain and fuel and inflation and all these issues. But, hey, we're the good guys, and that's why we're, you know, we're going to kind of sort of not really negotiate. We're going to have conversations. And again, they're doing it for like PR and marketing reasons. But the fact of the matter is they really need to actually have those conversations because when the risks are nuclear war, I mean, that's a 
that's a game changer. It's a whole new ball game when you look at that as a, a potential reality. And so obviously this uh, sort of made Macron uh, made his jaw drop and he's sounding the alarm a little bit. The other thing that's scaring me is there's been a number of instances now where various countries are telling uh, whatever uh, people from whatever civilians are there like, hey, leave. I don't know. I think China did it and Iran did it. Some others did it like, hey, for all of our uh, civilians, citizens who are in Ukraine might want to get the fuck out of that shit. So there's a little bit of that going on, which leads to the question, well, what do they know? Why are they why are they evacuating? Um, Not good. Not good, man. Let's hope that um, let's hope that we can actually find a way out. We can find an off ramp and. um, And we can bring about peace. Look, it might be the case. I don't know this for sure. Nobody does. But it might be the case that this war has taken such a toll on Russia and such a toll on Putin and that it's been so much harder than he expected that he actually would. If you just give him a little bit of a face saving thing, like a little bit of an off ramp, he'll take it in a heartbeat. Um, It's possible. I hope that's the case. And then I hope there are reasonable good faith negotiations that can avert a further crisis. But of course, it's always an option, as we always talk about the potential here, uh, that you do some sort of peace deal, and then he just agrees to it in principle, and then fucking ignores it. (laughs) In which case, you know, everybody's going to be like, should have never talked to begin with. This is Neville Chamberlain shit. This is appeasement. Um, And both of those options are possible. But again, when the stakes are nuclear war, you have no other option but to try to give peace a chance. And if it falls apart, it falls apart. We'll cross that bridge when we come to it. But right now, that's what you have to do. Because now, again, our own intelligence officials, 25% chance of nuclear war, 25% chance. This is psycho stuff, man. So let's find a way out. So one of the issues that's been top of mind for a lot of people, but it doesn't get much coverage anywhere, really, um, is housing costs. I mean, they are skyrocketing. Um, It's absurd. People are struggling massively. Well, now we actually have some good policy news to share with you guys. Quote, Americans aren't serfs. House Dems propose end to Wall Street rent gouging. Interesting. So I'll give you the specifics here. To help address the nation's housing crisis while at the same time confronting Wall Street greed, three California members of Congress on Saturday touted new legislation to target rent gouging in the U.S. by private equity firms and investment giants who have gobbled up huge numbers of single-family homes and residential units in the years since the 2008 financial crisis. So let me pause here to explain that a little bit to everybody. So what happened is you had the subprime mortgage crisis, you had the Great Recession, you had foreclosures skyrocket. Then you had these big Wall Street firms swoop in, buy up all these single family homes because they can afford to do it and regular people couldn't afford to do it. And then they would rent them back to people. Now, over time, they decided, of course, because what they do uh, what if we price gouged? What if we jacked up rents beyond belief? And so now people are screwed. Renting is far too expensive. Um, getting a mortgage and buying is far too expensive. What the fuck do you do? So, of course, you've seen a situation where homelessness has skyrocketed. Evictions have skyrocketed. Now, there's other factors as well. There's mental illness. There's drug addiction. But the cost of housing is one of the key culprits, of course. When you talk about, hey, I can't afford housing. What's the problem here? It could be the cost of housing. <laughs> that could be like, you know, it's kind of a tautology to say that this is a problem. Um, Wall Street should not be any family's landlord. Co-authored by Democratic representatives Ro Khanna, Katie Porter, and Mark Takano. By the way, uh, Khanna and Porter, despite whatever disagreements you or I may have with them, they are some of the better politicians in Washington, D.C. That's undeniable. The Stop Wall Street Landlords Act aims to deter future institutional investments in the single-family residential market by ending taxpayer subsidies to profit seekers as a way to help struggling families battling housing costs amid rising inflation. If enacted into law, the proposal would impose a tax on existing and future acquisitions of single-family residentials by large institutional investors. A statement from the lawmaker explains, lawmakers explains, the legislation would also prohibit prohibit federal lending institutions Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, and uh, Jenny Mae from purchasing and securitizing mortgages held by Wall Street firms who leverage their size and ability to purchase large number numbers of single-family homes with debt in order to turn around and rent them out for exorbitant profit, a tactic 
that by itself pushes re- rental prices even higher. So yeah, th- I mean that's a phenomenal this is a phenomenal piece of legislation. Um I would definitely be open to going even further. Um I'd be fine with banning them from doing what they do. Banning them from buying up single family houses in bulk and then reselling them at a profit. I mean, they're effectively disincentivizing it here, making it more expensive for them to do it, making it not as appealing a market for them, but Fucking ban them, man. Ban them. Why should BlackRock own, like, entire entire villages and, you know, price people out of the market? It's, it's psychotic. Quote, these Wall Street investors made money by crashing the economy, got bailed out, and now they're back to feed at the trough again, scooping up these loans at rock-bottom prices so that they profit off of them a second time, and it is up to us to stop that, Warren said to a cheering crowd during a Washington, D.C. rally in 2015. In remarks posted online Saturday, Kana said there may have been a time following the 2008 financial crisis where it made sense for private entities to step in to buy residential units as a way to stabilize the housing market, but that in the decades since, it has become clear that Wall Street investors have exploited government policies and a lack of oversight to fleece millions of renters who find themselves at the mercy of a housing crisis they did nothing to create and have no way to combat. Kana said... That with 25% of single-family homes in the U.S. being bought up by profit-seeking investors, these firms are hurting the American dream of home ownership and the economy overall. Yeah, like, that's... That's psycho shit, man. A quarter of the houses being bought by these Wall Street ghouls so they could turn around and price gouge people? There needs to be more regulation of the housing market. There's no way around it. There's no way around it. I, I mean, the American dream is long, long gone. But now, like, you can't even get the the fucking American cat nap because they're making that out of reach. We need to stop the financialization of housing, Kana said. Americans aren't serfs. We're not supposed to pay money to Wall Street to go live in a home. What we need is more American families to own their homes. When I was on the front lines of the foreclosure crisis, I saw firsthand how corporate special interests take advantage of families to line their pockets, said Congresswoman Porter in a statement. The Stop Wall Street Landlords Act promotes affordable home ownership so that our kids can live in the same communities they grew up in. I am proud to work with Representative Kana and Takano to hold Wall Street accountable. Uh, Takano said, Wall Street should not be any family's landlord. All right, so look, I mean, look, this is just good, right? This is just a good piece of legislation, and I'm happy that they're doing it. But it really does show you a stark difference between what's going on on the right right now and what's going on on the left right now. I mean, it's night and day. For all of my issues with the Biden administration, and there's many, what's the most recent thing they did? They just came out last week and said, we're going to crack down on all these junk junk fees from big banks. You know, like the overdraft fees, for example. They're like, we're going we're gonna to crack down on those because those aren't fair. Those aren't right. This is ridiculous. So they're doing things like cracking down on junk fees from banks to protect consumers, trying to crack down on Wall Street, um, you know, owning more and more of the single family homes in the country to stop the price gouging of people. Um, and the right's doing what? Freaking out for the 17th time about, like, some one transgender kid in Missouri who wants to play on a basketball team or some shit? <laughs> like, like, what exactly is going on? What, is the, what, what are we looking at here? And it is kind of frustrating, too, right? Because I don't... The Democrats are not good at campaigning. They're not good at PR. They're not good at strategy. They're not good at message discipline. So you're not going to hear about this story anywhere else. Credit to Raw Story for covering it, um, and we're going to be an outlet that talks about it, but like that's it. Nobody else is going to talk about this. So even a clear example of, like, here are some politicians in a very clear way fighting for you, fighting to bring down costs in the housing market, it's not going to fucking, it's not going to be a blip on the radar. It's not going to be a blip. And that's fucking terrifying, man. That's terrifying. Because, look, at least now we're having the conversation on the left about how do we fix inflation? What do we do? What do we do? Well, windfall profits tax would be the obvious answer. Extend the child tax credit. Do windfall profits tax and extend the child tax credit. This would be a great way to stop the corporate price gouging, which makes up anywhere from 54% to 60% of inflation. The other issue is the supply chain, of course. What's the rights approach? Cut Social Security, cut Medicare, cut Medicaid. And like cut taxes for the rich again. What are we talking about here? This is night and day difference, but we're still heading into an election which the Republicans are the favorite. That's a terrifying thing, man. That's a terrifying thought. All right, so here we go again, y'all. It's the return of Republican Joe Manchin. 
So, um, you guys know he was the the biggest impediment to getting um, the full reconciliation bill through. The full Build Back Better bill through. Now, we're going to get to more on that in a second. But it was him and it was Kirsten Cinema that were the biggest thorns in the side of Bernie and President Biden. Um, and he single-handedly changed the course of the U.S. by being obstructionist on that front. Now, I don't, don't get it twisted, because if it was Republicans in charge, not only would we not have gotten anything passed at all, but it would have been like another bad bill. It would have been like another corporate tax cut, another tax cut for the rich, another um, you know bill that outsources hundreds of thousands of, of jobs from the U.S. So it would have been worse if it was Republicans in charge. But it's because of Joe Manchin, we got the Inflation Reduction Act, which was, you know, what, 20% of what the Build Back Better bill was supposed to be? Something like that. So Joe Manchin knows. He sees the polls. He sees Republicans are favored to win in the midterms. He's scared for his own ass. Um, and so he's already starting his uh, re-election campaign. And his move is, West Virginia, don't kick me out. I, you know, I'm a Democrat, but I, I'm one of the good ones. And I'm kind of I'm really conservative because my state's conservative. So I'm just like you guys. I'm really conservative. So he comes out and he goes, oh, we need a deal. We need a deal on, uh, on our debt, on Social Security, on Medicare, on Medicaid. Um, we we got to do what we got to do. We got to cut it. We got to cut these programs. What's always amazing to me about this is, like... Even in conservative states, it is not popular to want to cut Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid. It's not popular at all. But his strategy is, let me say I agree with the Republicans and I want to cut these things because that'll help me get reelected. I simply don't agree with him that, that this is a good strategy to get elected. Look, Joe Manchin, yes, he needs to be more socially conservative in West Virginia. You know, maybe, hey, lay off a little bit on the abortion politics, lay off on the gun issue. You know what I'm saying? Because this is West Virginia. It is more conservative. But on outside of the social issues, they want you to look out for them. They need Social Security. They want Medicare. They want Medicaid. They want, like, cash relief for the poor. So I just think it's a fundamental misunderstanding of the way politics works. Like, socially, he needs to be more conservative than your average Democrat. But economically, I mean, West Virginia has a rich labor history, a rich union history. And these are people who are left economically. But he reads it totally wrong. And he leans in on like being fiscally conservative. And he ends up saying a lot of things here that are fucking ridiculous. So let's go through this here. This is in Bloomberg. West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin said Thursday that Congress needs to deal with the nation's crippling debt. By making changes to shore up Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, and other programs, he said, are going bankrupt. All right, there's already so much to respond to there. What drives me crazy is when you have U.S. senators who don't even understand the difference between the national debt and the annual deficit. And what's even possible when dealing with the debt. You cannot eliminate our national debt. It's not possible. It's not a thing. You're never going to do it. It's what, 22 trillion or something like that? This is all the money since the beginning of the country that, that, uh, we accrued in debt. Now, the U.S. government is not like an, a household. You don't have to like balance your budget every year or whatever the fuck. That's not how it works. That's not how it works. In fact, public deficits yield private surpluses. You understand what that means? So when the government takes on debt and spends money, uh, we have a public debt. But that is a private surplus, so that helps the private economy when you usher new private debt. New, uh, excuse me, new public debt. He either doesn't know this or knows this but misstates it. I, I, I just think he doesn't understand it. He doesn't know it. Even this idea of like, oh, these, uh, these entitlement programs are going bankrupt. That is totally not true. Totally not true. They've been saying this since like the 1970s, 1980s. Oh my God, they're running out of money. In a decade, they're going to be gone. And then a decade comes and they're not gone. They're just not. And, you know, even if you didn't touch these programs in any way, shape, or form, yeah, maybe in 15 years you'd have Social Security paying out, or Medicare paying out, like, 80% of the benefits it does today. But that's still 80 fucking percent. And there's also small changes you could make that would make them solvent forever. So, for example, for Social Security, the point everybody makes is raise the cap on the Social Security tax. So right now, it's only your, it's about, like, what, $130,000, $140,000 a year. You get taxed a certain percentage, your first 140000 but everything above that is you don't get taxed on it. 
So like LeBron James plays the same, pays the same amount or some like Wall Street CEO who makes $20 million a year pays the same amount for social security tax as, you know, a dentist who makes $130,000 a year. Why should that just lift the cap and tax them, tax the wealthy more, and then you could fund social security as far as the eye can see? But he doesn't bring this up because that's not what he wants to do. He wants to cut it. He wants to put the entitlements on the chopping block. Manchin said at a Fortune... Oh, here we go. Manchin said at a Fortune CEO conference... What a man... What a West Virginia Democrat he is. He'd like to see bipartisan legislation over the next two years to deal with entitlement programs, which he said are facing tremendous problems. That's nonsense. Some of the trust funds that help support the programs could run out of money in the next 12 years. That's total bullshit. There'd be a slight reduction in benefits. It wouldn't run out of money. That's nonsense. Which would trigger cuts to benefits. By the way, again, notice... Their instinct of like, oh, we got to be fiscally responsible. Nowhere to be found when it comes to any and all military spending. I mean, these people on a on a daily basis, they fart out another billion dollars for Ukraine. You know, they give more money and more weapons to Saudi Arabia and Israel. We spend hundreds of billions every year on so-called national defense. Nobody says a goddamn word about, hey, maybe we need to roll that back 20 or 30%. Nobody says anything about that. But the second thing, fiscal responsibility, is always like, well, you need to take a haircut. The average person who's barely getting by, you, you need to take a haircut. Not fucking Raytheon or Boeing or Halliburton. You do. Unbelievable. We cannot live with this crippling debt mansion, a Democrat said. If we can't come to grips of how we face the financial challenges this country has, then we're all going to be paying a price that we cannot afford. Again, simply doesn't understand the way a national debt works. No clue. Forget not understanding MMT. He doesn't even understand Keynesian economics. I mean, this is just garbage. Manchin made his remarks a few days before midterm elections that will decide control of Congress for the next two years. Republicans who are forecast to take control of the House and are challenging for control of the Senate are running on promises to rein in government spending. Some are proposing cutting outlays for Social Security and Medicare, popular but expensive programs that benefit the elderly or disabled, and using next year's deadline to raise the U.S. debt limit to extract concessions from Democrats. By the way... This is what you need to be worried about, because if Republicans take control, they have said, oh, we're going to use the debt limit to force through what we want to force through. So in other words, the U.S. debt limit, it's crazy we even have a debt limit, right? Because if you don't lift it when you need to lift it, what you're saying is uh, the, the U.S. is not an honest creditor. We, it's about money we've already spent, and so... To have a limit is crazy because it's like if we already allocated the money, but the debt limit can't, you know, the debt limit, it would be, it would eclipse the debt limit. Well, then the full faith and credit of the United States government is kaput. It's done. It's gone. It's like nobody ever anywhere in the world ever should take our word seriously on anything ever again. And it would plunge the U.S. into a literal depression, not just a recession. It would be a depression. Um, So... I mean, it's crazy, but the Republicans, just like they played chicken with this in uh, in the Obama years, in 2010, it looks like they're gonna it's going to be a, a similar thing where, where they will go to Biden and they will say, oh, you want us to raise the debt limit? You need some of our votes? Hmm. Well, you need to cut Social Security. You need to cut Medicare. You need to cut Medicaid. And um, if you don't, we'll just plunge the U.S. into a depression. That's what we're facing with Republicans taking back control. Now, look, uh, I got many criticisms of, of the Democrats, right? But the debate we were having is which parts of Build Back Better are we going to get through under the Democrats? It wasn't like, hey, should we do a giant depression or starve grandma? <laughs> like, that, that's going to be the debate that we're having now. And it's because Joe Manchin also wants to virtue signal to the right so he gets reelected by agreeing with them on an issue where the voters aren't even going to reward him for agreeing with the Republicans. Again, this is fucking crazy talk here. This is crazy stuff. President Joe Biden has vowed to protect the two programs and warned that a standoff over the debt ceiling would unleash economic chaos. Yeah, but what if that's what they want? They want that, and then they'll turn around and blame you, Joe. So they'll cause it, they'll turn around and blame Biden, and then they'll try to win in 2024. Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders said in a New York Times interview published Thursday that Democrats should raise the debt limit before the new Congress convenes in January if Republicans win the House or the Senate to protect protect Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid from cuts. That almost certainly would require Manchin's backing. So this is Manchin being like, maybe I'm not with you on that. Oh my God, here we go again. Here we go again. Manchin separately said both parties bear some blame for inflation, which is running near 
a 40-year high. He criticized pandemic relief stimulus checks sent to Americans by Congress under both Biden and former President Donald Trump. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. So, so what does he blame uh, for inflation? You guys gave a little bit of help to people in the middle of a raging pandemic and an economic implosion. How dare you, bro? Oh, my God. Joe Manchin, you're so fucking stupid. So he hasn't read any of the literature, and it's endless now, that says, actually, the real reason for inflation is the supply chain, because the global pandemic being fucked up, um, corporate profits, and monopolies. 54 to 60%. Of inflation is just corporate profits. That's all it is. It's corporate profits. They're price gouging. They're taking advantage of the narrative and the mania and the hysteria around inflation to just jack up prices across the board. 54% to 60%. So, big business, monopolies, this is the problem. Corporate price gouging, this is the problem. He points out the little bit of help, the $2,000 uh, worth of checks that people got in the middle of a raging pandemic. That's the problem. That's the problem. Not a, Not the... Uh, multi-billion or multi-trillion dollars that were dumped into corporate America. Not that. So it's not it's not the corporate bailout, the corporate welfare. It's the welfare welfare for regular people. That's the problem. This is fucking psycho stuff, man. This is psycho. This is part of the problem with Joe Manchin is he buys into every right-wing narrative around the economy. Now, some of Joe Manchin's shittiness is because he's deeply corrupt and he's owned by big oil, right, and other industries. And some of his shittiness is that he genuinely... Uh, has right-wing economic sentiments, right? And so anything we extract from him, it's like we're we're fucking lucky to get anything. So ultimately, um, ultimately, Joe Manchin is doing another heel turn because he briefly did a little face turn, but now he's doing a heel turn again because he thinks this is going to help him get reelected. And um, just what a fucking terrible idea. Again, I want to remind you. So what do we get? under Biden. What was the big uh, piece of legislation that had a bunch of good provisions in it? It was the IRA, the Inflation Reduction Act. And that had, for example, 15% corporate minimum tax rate. That's super fucking based. 1% tax on stock buybacks. Super fucking based. Um, Tens of billions of more dollars for Obamacare to give more people health care. Based. What? $6,000 for a purchase of a new uh, electric vehicle. Based, you know, there's a whole bunch of good provisions. We've gone through them on the channel. We don't have to go through them all again, but a bunch of good ones, right? Um, but here's what we could have had. And here's the reality, guys. If we had gotten this, the Democrats would be cruising to re-election today. Cruising to re-election today. It would be, we'd be talking about a blue wave. This is what was in the original Build Back Better. Extension of the child tax credit. Universal pre-K, paid family leave, paid medical leave, tuition-free community college, lower prescription drug costs, dental, hearing, and vision expansion under Medicare, more money for housing, more money for home care, major climate money, some immigration provisions, lower Medicare age, that would have been huge, Obamacare expansion, we got that part, Um, and then we would have uh, beefed up IRS tax enforcement, that's also part of the, uh, the IRA, which by the way, they're going after the wealthy in that people make over $400,000 a year, just so you know. Um, taxing the rich, taxing corporations, fees on polluters, um, and Medicare negotiations. So, And we also got some lower prescription drug prices, but it's only for uh, certain drugs and for the elderly, so it's not for everybody. Again, if it, if it wasn't for Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema, we would be talking about a blue wave because they would have gotten the biggest transformation of the American economy since the New Deal through. And now Joe Manchin, yet again, is coming out there, doing his heel turn, and letting everybody know, uh, I'm about to fuck your shit up, man. I'm going to agree with the Republicans on cutting Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid. And um, that is fucking devastating. And Joe Biden famously said the other day in a speech, I ain't going to do it. I ain't going to cut those programs. He better fucking stand strong on that, man. He better stand strong on that. uh, Because people can't fucking take any cut to those programs or any sort of weird new privatization scheme or whatever. And that's how they're going to present this. They're going to say, oh, it's reform. Oh, it's improving these programs. No, it's not. It's making them solvent in the long run. There's going to be a lot of mainstream media propaganda, which skews the reality, but we're going to be here to tell you the reality. All right, guys, that's the show, y'all. I love you very much. Definitely check out tonight. It is tonight. We have the election, the midterm elections. I will be covering it live right here on this channel. I will be with the Breaking Points crew. It'll be Crystal, Sauger, Marshall, me, 
Ryan Grimm, Emily, we're all going to be there. We're all going to be covering all the races, all the specific numbers that come in, have some interesting conversations and debates. Really looking forward to that. Definitely check that out. And of course, for those of you who like the show, do me a big favor and like the video, subscribe to the channel, trying to get to a million subs. It's very difficult to get there. The algorithm fucking hates this channel. Um, uh, and click that little bell notification so you get a notification every time a new video drops. And a big shout out, of course, to all the Patreon supporters of this show. You guys make it work. It's because you guys have never had to have a conversation with an advertiser in over a decade of doing the show. Shout out to all the people on Substack who subscribe to Crystal Kyle and Friends and pay $5 a month to get the video uh, version of the show a day early over there. Love you guys, too. You guys mean the world to me. And, of course, you guys could check this out on um, all the podcasting outlets. We now post the full uh, shows on a daily basis over there. So check that out, too. All right, guys. I love you very much. Everybody, uh, tune in tonight. Lord only knows what's going to happen, but it's going to get wild either way. So I'll see y'all later. Peace.